All right, guys, it's time for the next Level Guy Show, a men's interview, interest, and improvement-focused podcast featuring interviews with the greats from all industries to help you better your life. Each week, a new episode features an interview with one of the greats, covering all aspects of their story, from life hacks to tips and protocols that have allowed them to live life on the next level. We then highlight concrete action steps that you can use to improve your life. And now, your host, Ian Dawson McKay. And today's guest is Sam Lacrosse. He identifies himself as a nobody. He hasn't done anything amazing. He's not extraordinary or impressive. He doesn't even have a Wikipedia entry. He's just an ordinary guy from Cleveland, Ohio, who now lives an ordinary life in Austin, Texas. But if you want to check him out, he's the author of Value Economics, The Study of Identity. He writes blogs on don'treadthisblog.com and hosts Don't Listen to This Podcast. Sam is the CEO and founder of Don't Do This, LLC, a company that makes no money. He's also a board member of Thrive Living Corporation and an ambassador for Rally Cap Sports. A quick side note, I have a number of great affiliate deals with some special companies that I like to promote to my readers. So if you are in the market for a new book, apart from Sam's great book, the ones that I would recommend are Kenneth Play's book, Beyond Satisfied, a how-to guide to become a better lover. There's also James Clear's fantastic Atomic Habits, which is available in paperback and on Audible, which will show you how to make great habits and break those that are holding you back. There's also Crunch Time by Rick Pearson and Jude Hoskra, which teaches you the mindset tips to be at your best when it matters the most. For our links to these and the other products and services I highly recommend you check out, please go to www.nextlevelguy.com forward slash affiliates or click on the Affiliates and Resources button on the red ribbon at the top of the website. And now, let's get to the interview. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's an absolute pleasure to have a new author, a star author, who's now going to be blowing up the charts. But for people who maybe don't recognize your name, could you give a quick introduction? How <laughs> You've got an amazing bio, but how do you describe who you are? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, Ian. I really appreciate it, and I think that the bio does tell all, so maybe we can leave some of that for later. But basically, my name is Sam LaCrosse. I just turned 25 years old. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and northeast up in Northeast Ohio. I went to school in Columbus, Ohio, the state capital, moved out to Boston for a year, lived in Florida for a bit, lived in Pittsburgh for a bit, uh, lived all around the place. And I've been in Austin, Texas, where I'm currently broadcasting from right now for around 18 months. And so I plan on being here for the foreseeable future. But yeah, just kind of, uh, I am an author, uh, just released my first book in June of this year, a podcaster, a blogger, and a bunch of other different things. I, my LinkedIn bio is quite literally, I do lots of stuff. So I do do lots of stuff. And that is kind of how all the things, uh, all the things kind of come together. But yeah. No, it's a good way to describe yourself. I mean, a lot of people are, you know, they describe themselves as I do this job. I do that. I am gay. I am this or that. Is that what the inspiration for writing the book, you know, that people's identity, they, they've kind of lost track of who they are as a person? Was there another inspiration for starting the book? 
that was part of it for sure. So it, it, I like to tell the story of the origin of the book in two parts. So the first book was basically on the value economic, or the first part, I should say, excuse me, was based on the value economics portion. And the value economics portion was basically just the genesis of a conversation I had with my mother. I remember in summer of 2019, we were kind of having a generalized conversation about the origin, uh, or not really the origin of, but just about belief in general. And then my mom kind of threw out a comment about my generation. I'm part of Gen Z. Obviously, I'm only 25. And she also threw out a comment about my generation and said, you know, you guys really just kind of don't believe in much at all. And I was kind of saying like, well, that was, you know, I mean, okay, like, is that true? It was kind of, you know, I would say harsh a little bit, but you know, it's, is it true? Mm -hmm. And I thought there was some merit to that. And so then I kind of had a thought in my head about kind of, okay, we don't really value anything. We really don't do a lot of stuff. And then I kind of said in my head, the more you value something, the more you'll sacrifice to get that something, the less you'll value something, the less you sacrifice to get that something. And just kind of threw it in the back of my brain, didn't really think about it for another about six months. And so a couple months later, I, it was right before COVID. So, you know, winter, fall of 2020. And so right before everything closed down and I was in my mandatory economics class in college that I had to take, I had to take an advanced economics course to graduate. I was a finance major. You had to take one of those things. And then I was in the back of the room, kind of just dicking around with some of my friends and doing everything else, being typical senioritis seniors in last semester of college. And the guy was a really, really nice professor, big, you know, walrus mustache, John Bolden kind of looking guy. And so he came up and around all the, you know, just kind of, he was a nice guy. talked to us, a lot of that stuff. We were talking about supply and demand curves on the front thing. And I said, okay, wait a second. This is a relationship between two things. What I have is a relationship between two things. I had already bought the domain for a website, and w- which became my blog, readthisblog.com, And I needed content for a first post. And so I made what eventually became fa- chapter four of value economics, the value sacrifice trade-off. I kind of just did the supply and demand curve between two things and then put value and sacrifice on one and kind of explain the interrelation between the two of them and how human beings rationalize them in their heads. And I did that for my first blog post ever, actually, except for my high, I have a blog now post. And then it went over very well. I remember talking to my good friend, uh, Lene Brentley, who was just on my podcast a couple of weeks ago about kind of the, how, you know, she was really the first person to reach out and say like, this is really helpful. I, I really, really am enjoying this, like everything else. And so I said, okay, I might have a trend here. So I wrote value economics chapter two, I call was calling it chapter two at that point, although it turned out to be something else in the book. And then chapter two turned into chapter three, chapter four, chapter five, chapter six, chapter seven. And then I remember I FaceTime my parents for about every two hour or two hours every Sunday. And I remember telling them, I said, you know, Hey guys, I think I have something here. And they said, go ahead and go for it. And I had the, the, the chunky parts of the book. Like I had the chapters but what I was missing was the through line and the through line I chose to hit on was identity because I believe, and I came to the conclusion after writing all those chapters on quote unquote value economics, which is well, really value economics 1.0 back in those days that really identity is probably the hottest topic in our culture today from a lot of fronts, as you mentioned earlier about a lot of different things. And I thought that the best way to craft your, your identity as an individual person was to do so through individual values and not through any one group or group values, or I would say, you know, um, intangible or, or, you know, non, not tangible traits or whatever you want to call them, inborn traits that you have about you as a person, all that other sort of stuff. And basically that was what I tried to prove using the rest of the book and the rest of the lessons from value economics, try to prove that you can and should have an identity, but 
there are forms of identity that are less optimal. And I think that a lot of those are what you mentioned earlier. And a lot of those other things, even though they're important, there shouldn't be the central focus of your life because that can lead to all sorts of bad problems in my estimation. And I think we're seeing that in a lot of ways now. And I thought it was a good alternative to the kind of the craziness and the madness that we're seeing across our culture in a lot of different fronts. Because you definitely see that in things like social media, don't you? You know, it's like, I'm a liberal, I'm a Democrat, I'm this, I'm that. And you're just like, yeah, but who are you as a person? Oh, but I'm a, I'm fighting for this, I'm fighting for it. And you're like, yeah, but who are you as a person? And they, it's like we've completely lost. And I think that's the, I mean, I've had family members mention that about Generation Z. You know, it's the, we all have these kind of great wars, these great kind of problems in our, our society. And have is this the first generation that doesn't have any real issues, do you think? Is this why we kind of, go for the group identity because because we're not fighting the wars we're not doing this we're not doing that we no longer have an identity created for us or find our passion in life well this is the fight club question right like this is kind of the big i don't know if you've seen fight club before but uh, you know fight in, in fight club there's the famous scene i think really one of the first you know i think the actual first fight club that they actually have in the movie this is the monologue that tyler durden goes into about we have no great war. We have no great depression. The great war is between ourselves and the great depression is our lives. The whole big thing where, you know, the whole Chuck Palahniuk kind of nihilistic type of thing around it. So I don't know if we're the first generation to have it, but I think we are the first generation to have a alternative to that problem that does not work. And so what I mean by that is that we have a lot of, you know, we it's kind of been baked into us to be this naturally tolerant, ambivalent type of personality inside of a lot of different uh, definitions and manifestations of each individual in our culture. And we really don't have a common enemy because everyone has gotten so splintered from a lot of things. And I don't, I'm not suggesting that we go into another great war or great depression, but if we have the splintered idea of what we find holding us together and what we find holding our identities together, then we are going to really, really struggle to find what binds us together, both as an individual person and as groups. And I think the, really the big, problem and the big, I would say, opportunity a lot of other malicious people had was the pandemic and all that arose within the pandemic. And that was supposed to be our World War II. That was supposed to be our 9-11. That was supposed to be our, you know, whatever, Cuban Missile Crisis, whatever it was against the Soviet Union. And I can say, I think, I think a lot of people can say almost two and a half years removed from the onset of it in March of 2020 that we did not rise to the occasion. We sunk further into the mire in a lot of different ways. And we really, Definitely. really kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, fucked that up. And I think everything got worse. And that really was a curious question as to writing the book. Well, you know, we have this, this true existential, the word existential threat gets thrown around way too much in our culture, but this is a true existential, like millions of people are dying. People are getting sick all over the place or worried about everyone else. The economy shuts down, crashes, you know, destroys however many trillion dollars of wealth, thousands of businesses, all this other sort of stuff. Like people are really suffering here at a group level from this. And this was supposed to be our opportunity to rise to the occasion and say, we are going to rise above this. We're going to come together. We're going to do all this other stuff. And it just turned into the nastiness of human nature manifest across the entire world. And particularly in America, who leads the world in both in culture and in economics and in a bunch of other different things. And I think that that was a big factor. in when I was writing everything, I didn't really talk too much about COVID in my book. It's not really and it's not a political book, I would say, but a lot of people have taken it in political context because identity is so woven into our politics right now, which is very, very interesting. And, you know, I intended 
the book to be, I've used this analogy a lot recently. I intended the book to be the baseball that's thrown through a kitchen window. So basically you take a baseball, you throw it through a kitchen window, glass shards go everywhere and you have different conversations about different things. And I think I succeeded in that. And not one shard looks the same, not one shard is the same size, same topic, same whatever. And so a lot of people have had very, very different reactions to what I've written. And that's very, very good in my estimation. That's what I wanted to happen because I think it's more interesting to write about it that way. But I think the question of politics, and I don't talk a lot about politics inside of the book, but the question of politics is a really, really interesting one because a lot of people have found values through political, cultural issues, social issues, whatever you have in the day, which all got exacerbated during COVID and during the summer of the Black Lives Matter protests and riots, the uh, the George Floyd stuff, everything going on, the January 6th stuff, all that other type of, and all those things going on across the world, whether that be in Europe and, you know, the, you know, the Great Reset, everything else that kind of does everything over there, all that sort of thing. And so it's a very, very, it was a very, very interesting time to write a book about identity because I think, you know, the crux of the whole identity issue really kind of apex throughout the last, I would say, two and a half years or so. Because that was something I definitely noticed during COVID was, how little people wanted to change. You know, everybody kind of bunkered down into their very preset conditions, their beliefs. And I mean, I use COVID as a time to reset, you know, eliminate some of the bullshit baggage I had on to actually, you know, to redefine who I was as a person, what I wanted from life, etc. Is that the, like a main issue with not having these individually set, like a framework of values, not knowing your identities, because you don't know who you are, you can't make the decisions and others can shape you and mold you. Is this the kind of why people go to the self-help? You know, they they would rather somebody else told them who they were rather than find out for themselves, rather than do the inner work to discover what they need to know. Well, I think that is the primary issue. And I think that's the biggest danger of all this stuff is that when you remove your sovereignty from your own identity and you put it in the hands of somebody else and you say that, okay, whatever this cultural movement is, whatever this thing is, whatever everything else is, I'm going to let you take that and hold it over me. And I'm not going, I'm going to surrender the control of my sovereignty and my individuality over to you. Mm -hmm. And therefore, by definition, you become beholden to another person or another thing or another whatever. That could be a totalitarian figure. That could be a social movement. That could be something else. And you are completely at the mercy of whatever that thing is. And that's a very, very dangerous thing to have not, not have control over. And I think that we saw a lot of that, whether that was, you know, a lot of the people, I, I don't know if you've seen the, if you have HBO Max, I watched the documentary about QAnon called Into the Storm. And that was some of the weirdest, most interesting things I've ever heard in my life. Like, so like the QAnon thing was interesting because the QAnon stuff really kind of accelerated during COVID because of a lot of the crazy hysterics and everything around, I would say more far right extremism in a lot of ways, because people who didn't know who they were as people, they only wanted to be a part of a movement. The, those are the people that ended up, you know, donning Viking hats and, you know, you know, zip lining into Nancy Pelosi's office and, you know, trying to kill the woman. And then on the opposite side, you had the people that bought into the far left narrative and the people that really bought into the, I am going to be a part of the catalyst that totally overthrows the American establishment, like cultural Marxism, the whole other type of thing. And those are the people that were chucking Molotov cocktails into cupcake shops in downtown Minneapolis. And so that was kind of the really bifurcation of both of those across the ideological fronts. And it, it was strange because those things could get so perverted and so perverse because you see the leaders of those movements. They say, 
one thing they talk out of both sides of their mouth. And they basically wield people as weapons. And that's a very, very dis, like dehumanizing thing to experience and to watch from afar. You see people who are individual people and who have lives and families and should be so much more than just a pawn in the overall machine. And then you see all of this stuff going on and, and you see what people can be reduced to in a lot of ways. And that's very, very frightening because people are the, by, by scientific definition, the most valuable thing on the face of the earth. And I did the math in my book at the end of the, at the end of the last chapter. And when you are able to minimize even something as valuable as human life, that is a very, very scary proposition. And that is what happens in the abstract. We've seen this with every totalitarian failure, whether that is communism or fascism or whatever it is, they all collapse into nothing and they all cause unbelievable suffering much more in the fallout than on the come up. And, you know, that never has failed in either any way it's been tried. And the result of that and the genesis of that is the sacrificing of the individual identity for that of the group identity, whatever it might be. And so that is what awaits us. That is an undeniable fact from what I can tell from looking at history, from looking at human nature, from looking at everything. That, that is what will happen if this continues to happen. And we're seeing small manifestations of it now, but they're going to get much, much, much larger if they continue to increase in the way that they are. So say if somebody's listening and thinking, well, I don't mind being a pawn in the, you know, like in a global network, this cog of um, manufacturing, et cetera. You know, like you get these people, you say, oh, hi. And they say, oh, I am Tommy. You go, oh, who, what do you, who, you know, what do you, what do you do, et cetera. And they'll say, oh, I work in a bank. You know, that's, that's as far as they've ever kind of identified themselves. What's the, what's the issue with that? I mean, do you think that it then, it creates these sort of negative emotions like people turning to drink, drugs, masturbation, porn to kind of almost to have an outlet to kind of to get rid of that feeling of that they know there's more to life. You know, it's that the danger to this that we are led into a, a society of wants rather than needs. You know, we're kind of pushed into impressing the Joneses down the street rather than what we can create in the world and what we can give back to others. I think it's a huge component of it. And I, I actually talk about it in, in chapter two of my book about the, I call it keeping up with the Joneses syndrome. So uh, K-U-T-J-T-S syndrome. And I think that the commercial aspect of it and the job aspect of it is very, very interesting. That is, that is one thing I, I was more focused on the more existential questions about identity. But I think, you know, what we've seen in the last, and I actually gotten pretty hot water from some people over this recently was because I made a comment about the great resignation and quiet quitting that a lot of people didn't like. And I said, basically, all of, yeah, and I basically said all of the great resignation. I think the great resignation is bullshit. I think it's absolute bullshit on, on a lot of things. And, and mind you, I want to you know, clarify this to something because I think this is what a lot of people lost in the sauce. I am not a corporate shill. Like I, I work for a corporation in my day job and I, and I you know, enjoy, I'm very, very grateful to give me employment and an opportunity to do this with you. But I am probably the most anti-big corporation person you will meet in a lot of different ways. I don't like big things. I don't like big government. I don't like big corporations. I don't like big networks of people. I don't like big things. I don't trust big things. I always think small is always better than big in most, most cases. And the problem that we are seeing now, and this is what I was getting into in all this stuff, is that companies have gotten into the purpose business. And that is a drastic mistake for them to do that because- it will do the same thing that they have done in almost every ideological movement in a lot of ways. And this is what we're seeing a lot with 
ESG standards and a lot of things around stakeholder capitalism and a bunch of different things that we're seeing that are really, really quite frightening in a lot of ways. And I think that there, the main issue with that is like, okay, let's say, you know, you said about, about the example of the guy that worked at a bank. Say, I'm a banker for a living. I say, cool. And you say, you know, kind of your point, you know, what else you do? I'm like, oh, that's kind of just, that's it. That's kind of what I do. Okay, well, what if the bank fires you? Then who are you? Mm-hmm. Then who are you if they're bank fire Because you're not a banker anymore, right? You're you're by definition not a banker anymore. So well, that's, where uh, that's the problem, go? isn't it? Is like you you know you yeah. give your life for a job that's going to re-advertise your position before you're even buried. That's right. And then you you get something, and then to your point after that, you you are so desperate to cling on to what that thing gave you that you turn to anything that can get that quick dopamine hit to just restore it right away because so much of yourself has been lost inside of that career or that relationship or that social movement or whatever that you do, especially, and this is especially, I think, a problem for for men, for young men in particular, and, and I would say older men also, so men in particular, but men are not meant to be idle creatures. We are not meant to be having, and people are not meant to be idle creatures. And I, I think I think women have, I don't know what it is in their genetics, but I think women are naturally wired to be they they do things like they they do not like to sit they they go and they they do activities they have hobbies they have everything else men do not do that we have something in our dna i don't know what it is and i'd be very very interested to, to know what this is but i think women are much better at keeping themselves busy and occupied and purposeful than men are because what do men do when we have time by ourselves we do nothing we drink booze we smoke weed we watch sports, we jerk off, we watch porn, we do all this other kind of stuff. And it's 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 not good. It is not good that when men do not have a purpose, when people don't have a purpose, it's not good. And so I think the job front is very, very interesting. That was the one area that I didn't consider. And I think that was a big error on my part. But I think a lot of the stuff around the entitlement surrounding the great resignation of them having to give us purpose as human beings is a very, very, very flawed assumption. And I think it's a dangerous assumption in a lot of ways. And how, like, say if you have somebody starting off just now going, okay, you know, I'm thinking about my identity, you know, this is all kind of a sort of encouraging, you know, it's getting their, their cognitive juices flowing, so we say. How how do they need to understand that their identity, their values in life is shaped by, you know, their cultural, their religious upbringing, the family dynamics, their parents, you know, how how are we initially formed before we get to the point where we actually can rise above and understand, you know, maybe this isn't who we are. How are we shaped by media, by, you know, family, schooling, these sorts of things, you know, did you look into that area like when you were considering writing the book? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the fundamental question, the foundational question rather of everything, because you need a starting point. And in the book, in Value Economics, I literally go to the first chapter is what is a value? Where does a value, a singular value come from? And so the economic principle I drew from that was the factors of production. So the factors of production for your, our listeners who may or may not be aware are traditionally land, labor, capital, and entrepreneurship. And you need those four things to successfully create an economic engine that then goes into an economy to interact with other economic actors. And so what I chose in order to find, find a value was basically the factors of value production. So that are those are your experiences, your actions, your discipline, and your self-awareness. So the first one experiences the land. You cannot have anything without that base root of everything else. You cannot, you cannot have it by definition. And you need to have a starting point for how you view your world. So that is, to your point, your parents, 
your religious upbringing, if you had a religious upbringing at all, what you experienced as a child, your trauma, your pain, your joy, everything that kind of, you know, shaped your worldview. But then to also your point, your sovereignty has to kick in and you need to say, okay, maybe I don't really get down with this as much as I should, or maybe I don't really agree with this, or maybe I do agree with this as much as I should. And that's where your discipline and your self-awareness come into the back of your head where you have to say like, okay, this is where I need to make sure that I either affirm this in my head by testing it or reject it in my head by testing it. And then you can basically, you have those base experiences and those are very, very important. But if you don't do anything in utilizing your sovereignty or your agency behind it, you're just going to be a, you're going to be a pawn to whatever your experiences were. And that is a lot of the thing I think we're seeing a lot with, you know, a lot of people who I think are acting maliciously in, I would say, our, um, in our corporate world and our politics by saying like, to example, like, for example, like, you know, this, a lot of the arguments I believe around things like systemic racism and systemic prejudice against women, for example, and they, you know, these people in positions of power, they tell, and I think uh, in America, black folks are the easiest ones to to use because this is unfortunately the one that is used so often is that they tell black folks in this country, particularly young black folks, they say, you know, you're already so far behind the eight ball, you know, you might as well just not even try. You might as well just not even try. And, you know, it's, you know, you know the, the man's going to get you, you know, the, the system is against you. You're never going to win. So you might as well just kind of, you know, ride the teat all the way to your grave. And then it's like, I look at that and I'm, I'm so, I'm so appalled by that mindset. I, I'm, I'm so appalled by it because I look at those people who tell these, these folks, these things. And I say, who in the hell are you to tell somebody that they cannot do something because of something about them? That, that, like that's like that's racism blatantly point blank that is racism because you are this you cannot do this and i'm no. like and i'm and i'm very curious about it. i'm like like why are these people allowed to get away with this and it's because of this whole phenomenon surrounding that your lived experience quote unquote and your experiences in general are the defining aspects of your life and that is not true in the slightest they have an impact no doubt no question is it hard to be a black person in america Sure. It's very, very hard in a lot of cases. It's hard to be every person in every walk of life because everyone has struggle. Everyone has challenge. We all have individual struggles. Some groups have struggled historically more than others. I'm not solving that at all. But to just go and tell them that their experiences are the extent of their individuality and who they are as a person is just it's so it's so disgusting to me. It really, really is. And it's it's becoming more and more common, which I find very, very disturbing. And is this something that you've noticed sort of develop over the last, say, 30, 40 years? Is this always been something that kind of people in power, especially, use the concepts of values of identity to kind of manipulate, control people and hope, you know, that they don't know who they are? Because I notice, like, I work with PhD students, and a lot of students only kind of start trying to figure out who they are when they've moved away from their family when they've maybe gone to a different country and things like that, you know, they mm-hmm. maybe start changing their parents, um, uh, you know, be a bit more sexually adventurous and things like that. Are you, do you notice that, that over the last sort of a hundred years that there is always that push to kind of control the mass, like the mass people by control of the identity, the shaping of the narrative they want them people to go? 
so I, I'm only 25, so I guess I can't say for sure. But I, you know, from, <laughs> well, what, I, so from, from what I've observed, I definitely believe that's the case. And I'm actually almost done with my second book as we speak. And, and this is a big part of the second book. And I think basically what I call, I'm looking at the trends that like, and if I, I, I kind of distilled this in my head and I said, okay, if there was one trend, I know you're coming from across the pond over there, but in America, if there was, if I could define the last 60 years in America by one trend, by one, what would it be? And the only logical conclusion that I could come to that would kind of affect the most areas in the most cases was the societal relaxation of old norms, the abandonment of tradition in a lot of ways. And this is reflected in things by, in very good things, I would say in a lot of ways, by women entering the workforce and becoming more autonomous from men, from not being as shackled to men as they once were. Uh, the civil rights movement, um, you know, people, um, you know, let, um, trying to think of uh, gay rights, all these other things, transgender rights, all these other things, a lot of which have allowed people to live with more freedom, with more liberty than they had before. But that's also eroded a lot of the old sense of what gave people meaning. So like, I, I don't know if you know who Douglas Murray is. Douglas Murray is, is um, an English writer, an English author. And he's one of probably, you know, he's one of my favorite th thinkers out there right now. And he has a really, really good answer to this. And he basically asked, he was asked, I think, by Lex Friedman most co coherently on his podcast a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago. You know, what's the Lex Friedman always asks people, what is the meaning of life at the end of every podcast? And Douglas Murray said, you know, well, if you want to find meaning, the best place to look would probably be where people found it before. And I thought that was a very, very intelligent answer. And so if we erode all aspects of tradition in society, then by that definition, we erode all sources of meaning in society. And by definitions of meaning, what do I mean? By traditional gender roles, by the nuclear family, by religious institutions, by social institutions, by local community involvement, by local government, by um, a lot of other things which have been largely outsourced to the broader culture, which to the point of social media and the point of the news and a bunch of other things has been largely globalized. So that even that portion of our identities are being really broadcasted across the world and just kind of disappearing into one another into this kind of, you know, bizarre, you know, utopianist visionist type of thing where it's like, you know, no one knows how to make sense of anything anymore when you go to that kind of abstraction. And I, I'm sorry to get really, you know, philosophical at that point, but it's, um, but I think that, I think it, it makes a lot of, I think that makes a lot of sense when I look at it. So I think that a lot of what's going around in the last hundred years has really caused a lot of this. And I think it's kind of just beginning to peak at this point because we're now so aware of everything going on that we really don't know what to do with it in a lot of senses. Because that's what I really liked about the book was, you know, you, you actually identify that, your writing isn't, you know, you don't always want people to agree. They might completely disagree with what you're saying, but it's you want to open up people's, you know, into discussion. You want to get them to to look at these things and kind of figure out where they're coming from. You know, you you talk in the book about um, what is it? True values get distorted in the pursuit of greater value. How are our values shaped? You know, and how how are they manipulated? as we seek more in life and you know could you how do you find value is attributed in our like to us and how how is it messed or controlled as as we age if we don't take control of our own destiny so to speak 
Yeah, yeah. So th- that's a very interesting point. Point. So I- I've been writing now. I would say professionally in my in my you know side or my my other career as a writer, and this is one of the most interesting topics I think I've ever stumbled upon. I, I use the example of in the book I, I talked about the one time that I can remember on record that uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and Tucker Carlson agreed on something, which has probably only happened that one time. I haven't really found anything else where mm-hmm. it's been you know something else in in, in that nature, but. I think the topic of excess is a very, very relevant one. And I think that, t- that that excess in a lot of ways has corrupted and corroded a lot of other people because we have removed all reference points, as I mentioned in my last point. So we don't know where to stop in many different ways. We're really, really pushing boundaries that we have never even had the audacity to push in any case before really this kind of came up in the broader culture. And I think that that whole loss and that that in, inherent greed that comes with that insatiable appetite for pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing that can distort value because you know when like let's just say you're so you work with a lot of college students so you work with a lot of a, a lot of students in terms of everything else so i was a business student in college a lot why do people go to business school to get a good job outside of college so they go to they go and they go to college and they get a good job at you know i work in tech sales let's say like they get a good, good job in tech sales after a while, that goal becomes move. The goalpost moves. And then it's like, I want to be a vice president of a sales organization. Okay, cool. Nothing wrong with that. If that aligns with your values, nothing wrong with it. But you have to check yourself during there. And then eventually you go and go and go and push and push and push and push without that self-awareness and that discipline to look at if that's what you actually want and what you actually value rather than just kind of following the gravy train down to your own hedonism. And then you look... 20 years down the line, you're okay. You got a great job. You're either you're the global vice president of a sales organization for a technology company. You're snorting Coke out of hookers asses. You're doing a bunch of other cool things. You're drinking with your buddies every single weekend, but your wife hates you. You haven't talked to your kids in three weeks. You're you got four houses, three of them. You don't even step the foot in for more than a week, about a year. And you know, what does that really look like in the end game? Like what, what does your life actually look like when you do that? And if that's what you want, and there are some people that want that. That's fine. Then you did your job. But if that's not what you want and you look back at that and say, man, how the hell did I fuck this up so bad? You have only yourself to look at because that's not what you valued clearly. And you didn't have a really good grasp over your values because you outsourced your sovereignty towards something else, which is that pursuit of the more and more and more of the pursuit of the excess. And that really, really corrupts value because when you pursue excess for the sake of pursuing excess, it becomes a pyramid scheme. It doesn't become a value producing entity. It's just, you want more of something and it's not bad to want more if that's what you value, but it is bad to want more if you don't value that. And that is unfortunately where I think a lot of my generation has fallen into that trap. I think a lot of other people, you know, older executives you see is probably the people that fall into that trap as well. But I would say in anything, that's kind of where that whole discussion, you know, inevitably leads, unfortunately. Because I was really interested the the concept you mentioned. Um, sorry, I had to write it down. In this day and age, it's not enough to have values anymore. It's about our ability to use them to their greatest effect that will pr- prove the difference. How how do you get somebody to sit down and say to them, you know, What's, what values actually mean to you, you know, and not what your parents have shaped you, not what the school has led you to believe, like, you know, somebody just going down the career path because it's what's expected of them. How do we start making this change and getting people to 
do the inner work, not go and just get the dopamine hit or the instant gratification. I've bought a book. I'm going to follow David Goggins or whoever. How do we actually start using a book like yours and going, okay, I need to figure out who I am. I need to start asking these questions and then start figuring out my values and then using them to give back, to actually achieve something in the world and not just wake up when you're 80 and go, ah, fuck that up. Well, I would say that it's very, very hard. And that's why a lot of people don't do it because doing the inner work is worked by def by the word and by the name and by the definition. And right. I think that's really, really, it's really, really hard when you are someone who is clearly not living authentically to who your what your values are. You're kind of just coasting on the wind, like in Forrest Gump about like what everyone else wants you to do. And you look down and you have that kind of, oh shit moment where you are, you know, two lines deep in a hooker's ass and you kind of sit yourself down and be like, dude, what the hell am I doing? And then you sit down and you get a piece of paper out and hopefully you have a copy of value economics on your nightstand. You pull that out too and you put that on your thing and you know, you don't want to look at it. And, and that is the biggest thing I think that people have to overcome is that they, they don't want to look at what they've created and what they've manifested. And, and I think that that's very, very, hard for a lot of people. It's, it's hard for me. It's probably very hard for you. It's hard for every human to do that because human beings don't like to look at what has destroyed them or not really, you know, benefited them in a lot of ways. Like I think one of the most eye-opening scenes that I've ever seen in a movie, and I just got this like six, um, about six months ago. So the, um, uh, the, the fifth Harry Potter book, the order of the Phoenix is my favorite Harry Potter book. And the fifth movie has my favorite scene in all of the Harry Potter movies. And Harry Potter movies are good movies. So it's the scene in the end of the Order of the Phoenix where Harry Potter gets possessed by Voldemort. When Voldemort goes inside of him, and the whole movie is about Harry dealing with the dark side that is inevitably inside of him, and he doesn't know what to do with it really because he struggles yeah. with it. He has, ang I, I'm assuming you've seen the movie. He has the angry outbursts. He yells at people. He constantly is wrestling with his internal demons. And the the part where that scares Harry the most. I don't know if you remember this in the whole scene where he gets possessed and Voldemort's inside of him and all of his friends are looking at him retching on the ground and doing all this kind of stuff. And he's having all these visions and seeing all these things. And it was the one part where Harry's in front of a mirror and he's looking in a mirror and his head kind of jerks around and Voldemort's face goes over his face and he says, yeah. look at me. And that's the most terrifying part of the vision. Why? Because he knows that Voldemort is a part of him. And he knows that Voldemort is inside of him. And he's terrified of that because Voldemort is the thing that he is most afraid of, that he hates the most, but also that it's a part of Harry Potter and Harry Potter's psyche. And he can't remove it from him, that from part from himself. And I think that look at me moment is really, really damaging to a lot of people. And it's really, really hard because they do not want to look at themselves and say, this is who I am. A part of this is who I am. I caused this. This is my fault. I have to deal with this. And so I think that that is the biggest hurdle you have to get over. And so the natural question that relies from that next is how do you get over that? And I would say you need to break it down bit by bit. You break it down little by little and say, okay, where did I go wrong here? What actually do I value? What are my actual values? How do I pivot away from those and towards, towards this? How do I do all this stuff? And that's really, really hard work, particularly if you have based so much of your life on whatever hedonistic demons that has possessed it in a lot of ways. And I think it's it's very, very hard work to your point, but it's it's work that must be done. 
in order to live a life in accordance to your values. And if you don't want to do that, that's fine. But I would say living by a script of values is by far, and not just saying this because I wrote the book on values, but you know, I, I think that it's, I think that it's just a much better alternative to live than the opposite path is from what I can tell. And I've lived both of them. I can only tell for really from my experience, but I can see it in other people and the people who live life by principle rather than life by impulse and instinct are much, much happier in multiple ways. No, it's a fantastic answer. I mean, I've, I've like you, I've gone down both paths. I've, I've kind of gone down the, it's just expected, you know, it's what friends are doing or it's what family expects of you. Whereas suddenly yeah. when you actually step back and go, God, I'm coming up to like 30, 40, 50, whatever it is. And you go, no, that I haven't lived my life. Um, I'm not living by my principles. I've done this just to keep a job, to keep a roof over my head. You know, is this the where you mentioned about value and sacrifice, the link between the two, that you have to be willing to to sacrifice to really to, to start making this change? What? How do people who, you know, when you're bumping against the start of this, you know, this kind of, okay, I want to start making an improvement, but there's a lot of pain between the comfort zone and actual change. How how would you start getting somebody to start doing that work? Is it meditation? Is it writing? Is it asking yourself the questions? What kind of inner work are we discussing? And where does the you know the concept of sacrifice come into this to like to pr- truly make that deep level change? Mm-hmm. I would say that for each individual person, it can be different, but it all starts with the dialogue that you have with yourself. It's about what you tell yourself inside your own head. It's what what goes on between the ears that matters the most. And I think that the biggest thing, so I dedicated my book to those who tell the truth. And I think that telling the truth and honesty is the way out of hell in a lot of ways. You can basically say that, you know, the path to a good life is paved with the truth in my estimation. That's the best answer I can come up with at that point. But I would say that there are a lot of ways in which people can go about doing that. And I think, again, it starts small and all that type of, type of thing. And I think that the other thing that people have to realize is that the smaller sacrifices are much easier to make than the bigger ones. And so if you are that guy, like I described earlier, that 40-year-old who's cheating on his wife with you know snorting coke, all that other kind of stuff, that's going to be a much bigger sacrifice than if you're 20. And saying like, you know, man, I'm just, I'm, I'm partying too much on the weekends. I really, like, I probably want to stop this. Like, I don't want this to become a problem. That is going to be a much easier route for that 20-year-old to do than that 45-year-old. And where he's got investment of money tied up into it. I mean, who knows? His wife could divorce him, take all of his things. His kids could hate him. He could, like, his whole life could fall apart, basically. When you're a 20-year-old, you, you can fuck up and get away with it. You can't do that when you're 45. You just can't do that. And so yeah. I, I would say... The best advice and where sacrifice plays into it is that you need to learn how to do it early. It's a muscle to you have to exercise. You need to learn how to do it early and you need to learn how to do it often for the right reasons. And if you and that all comes back to knowing what you value and the value and sacrifice are correlated. So that if you know those and you really, really live in principle in accordance with those, you can really, I would say, have a working relationship that's feasible with all three of them and are, are all or not all three of them, however many you want. But the core ones that guide your life. And you can really start to carve that out for yourself. And once that happens, you have at least a fighting chance to do all that, all those type of things and live a principal life versus one that's not. It's time for a quick break. 
There are millions of potential products to buy, so how do you know which ones are worth your hard-earned money? Simple. You go to nextlevelguy.com affiliates and explore those that will transform and improve your life. You'll find deals, listener exclusives, and special offers with some great companies. Recommendations are 100% honest and only on items Ian has tried or believes in. The companies showcased will make you a better man in all areas of your life. Simply go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates and level up. Because when is this where you in the book you talk about um what is it? You need guiding principles to use those individual values to successfully interact with the world. So where do we find these guiding principles? You know, like if you are somebody who's like, you know, going off and cheating on the wives, not dealing with your kids and things like that. How how do we even start establishing these sort of principles? Is it just a good, hard wake-up call? You need that moment in your life where you think enough's enough? Or, you know, can this be done now to prevent such an event in somebody's life? Well, I think that's what happened to me. So, I mean, that's kind of what I know about, about <laughs> yeah. a lot of stuff. That's kind of what, that's kind of what happened me. to me. So, I, I mean, Yes, I, I was going to say that's kind of what my story ended up being. But, you know, I think I split the book up into two parts. The first part is basically how to like what is a value, how to develop a value, how to develop a set of values and use that. And then the second part of the book was developed based on economic concepts about how to use the values in real life and use principles that are mm -hmm. defined in the back part of the book. And I don't know if like my there are a lot of ways in how to do this, this is kind of what the self-help industry is made of. And I've unfortunately, I think, fallen into the lump of those. Hopefully mine is better. But I think that a lot of things surrounding the back half of the book are a lot in a lot of ways. They are basically guiding principles that are at least valued or, or I would say backed by some sort of scientific fact, which is economic economics is social science. So I use a lot of graphs and charts and theories and a bunch of other things. And I relate that to different concepts in your life and everything else and all that, all that other sort of thing. So I try my best to do that. It's not a perfect science. I, I literally just made the science up when I wrote the book, but I, it's not a perfect science. It's not really a perfect formula to do everything, but it was my best guess and my best option in order to try to explain everything because I was not big on the premise of me proposing this grand new idea of you need to have values guiding your life. There wasn't really anything tangible behind it to help people do that. And that was my best guess and my best effort to attempt to square that circle, as it were. Because that's something that was, that was kind of annoying in the, about the book was I kept going, no, don't go down that rabbit hole. Don't, don't go down there, you know, because there's a lot of stuff like it's a, it's, it's a podcast of its own. You know, and it's it's hard to keep it general like I like to do in the first one because there's so much there. There's so many thought-provoking things. I mean, I didn't always agree with absolutely everything, but I like that about your style. You know, it was the, let's just open up that to question. And then it was like, well, why do you find that offensive? Like one reader I noticed she reviewed saying, no, not for me, too many swears. And I thought, yeah. that says yeah. more about you. You had identity, you know, that she's not willing to... to to take a chance on this did you find sort of a, a bounce back from people on your style of writing because it can be a bit strong a bit kind of abrasive in places but i mean that is your identity that is how you you know you're portraying yourself authentic you know you're being you as a writer did you find that unusual did you get a knockback from people 
who were struggling with that kind of style of writing? Yeah, I absolutely did. And I think that there, there are layers to this question. And one big one that I wanted to do was that I, to my book's point, I'm a nobody. No one knows who I am, a bunch of other things. So I thought that mm -hmm. when I started the blog back in 2020 and when I started the, and when I started writing the book and whose writings are a lot derived from the blog, they've since been deleted, but they were on the blog on, on the first portion of it. I wanted to kind of just say like, this is my shot. I'm going to shoot my shot here. And I'm going to try to make a effort to become differentiated in some way. And if, the, and I, I naturally have a sailor mouth, unfortunately, that is kind of the way that I write and the way I, that I talk. And I type, like I talk, like a guy who um, I used to work for a manager who's become a really good uh, mentor of mine in my professional career. He basically said that to me, like I type, like I talk. And I said, well, that's about as good of an answer as everybody as I can, as I can give to that answer. That's what I like. And it's so, authentically you, you know, you, yeah. you're, not, you're not playing a character. You are being you. And yeah. how many self-help books do you read and you go, they're a dick in real life, but they're portraying themselves as some savior. You know, at least you, you know, you put out work that you know deep down that from now to whenever, that is you. You're not yeah. somebody else. You're not playing a role or whatever. And I, th I like that. And I mean, if somebody can't take a couple of swears or, you know, without coming back with constructive criticism, then they're not. It's just more about their identity more than you, but um, oh, sorry, I interrupted you there. But um, no, 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 no. I think that's a, a very crucial point. So, I, I chapter one in my book, I dedicate, and this is actually very, very interesting because this is, you know, like I said, the, you know, the baseball through the window analogy. The conversations have gone all over the place with this. But the one thing that has been a really big sticking point to a lot of people was this subject of polarization, and I think polarization is a good thing, contradictory to what society tells us in a lot of ways. And I knew that once I put this out, a number of things could happen. I had I could have family members that were really, really offended by it and not want to associate with me. That happened. I could get nasty reviews on Amazon, on Goodreads and whatever. That could really, really harm my character when they don't know anything about me but the book. That happened. I had, you know, re repercussions at work. If they saw that and, you know, I, I work for, I'm not going to say which company, but I work for a pretty well-known technology company. And I think the culture around big tech now is that if one person gets a, a whiff of something they don't like and they want to persecute that person for it, they can definitely do that. And so I said, basically the third leg of that, I could get fired from my job. Thankfully that has not happened. They've actually very, been very, very supportive of my writing and everything else inside of it, which has been a very, very unique blessing that I don't think I could have had in a lot of other places. So I'm very, very grateful for those people for doing that. But I, I knew once I put this out that I was going to potentially injure myself in multiple ways, but I, I really had to, you know, go, go back to going back to um, something that Douglas Murray once said on, on Joe Rogan, which was very, very powerful and it stuck with me in a lot of ways. You know, it's, it's distilling the amount of opinions that you care about down to very, very few. And I said, I wanted to please four people with this book. I wanted to please my parents and I wanted to please my grandparents. And my grandparents are, my grandma is 79 years old. My grandfather is 83 years old. So they are older people and they are not, they're pretty rich. And I mean, you want to talk about people that are in their values that talk about 80 year old people. They're in their values at this point. Like they don't really give a shit anymore, but they are very, very traditional people. My grandmother, especially my mom is very, very not conservative. I would say this is not to say they're conservative in a political way, although I would say my mom is 
and my grandma is most definitely not, even though I think she is in some ways, but they're conservative in the sense where they're like, I think I should act a certain way. This is kind of the way everything is. Like, I, I think I should act like this, whatever. So, but I, I will never, I, I remember my mom, I sent her over the ebook or she bought the ebook and she was reading it on her iPhone, like reading a 280 page book on her on your iPhone. It's like, a, that's a big deal. And so I'm like, holy shit, you're reading, I'm like, wait to get the paperback, whatever. And so, um, but she remember, I remember she texted me on a, on a, I think it was on a Wednesday and she said like on chapter nine, can't wait to finish the book. And chapter 10 is when all the shit hits the fan and I like dump all my, all my sins on the, on the thing and whatever. And I kind of, you know, climax the book and everything. And so I, I'm at work the next day. I, I go, I'm a hybrid. I go into the office on Tuesdays and Thursdays and I'm in the office on a Thursday and I have a meeting in five minutes and my mom calls me and I'm like, oh shit, this is the, I finished the book call. And so I, I go into a, a focus room over here or like a breakout room or whatever, pick up the phone. Hi mom. And, and she's like, Hey Sam, like, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm good. I'm like, sorry, I'm, I hate to do this mom. I got a meeting in five minutes, but you know, I'm assuming this is the call that you said you finished the book. And she's like, yes, it is. And I said, what do you think? And she said, I loved it. And it made me feel so good. And I'll never, for, and that was one of the greatest moments I've had in a very, very long time. And I, I remember a similar thing with my dad, who is a very slow reader. He is a very most intelligent person I've probably ever met in my entire life. But he, um, you know, he, he texted me and he said how much he was proud of me. And he told me that, you know, I'm really, really proud of you. This is a, I think a lot of people need this. I think this is a fantastic book. I learned a lot from it and I really admire you for being vulnerable and for being brave and putting this out there. And I get emotional thinking about both of those things because I, I look up to my, I, I did not look up to anybody growing up other than those. And my grandparents said something very similar, by the way, my grandma, who she's like, you know, you can probably do without the cursing next time, but I really, really loved it. And, yep. and, 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 and my grandpa, who is not a reader at all, is trying to work his way through it now. And so, but he agrees with a lot of the stuff my grandma told him and my parents told him. And I said, you know, I, I get emotional thinking about it because I've distilled my opinions down of people that matter so much that, you know, everything else is great. Like, I mean, I have a couple friends who are, I, I'm, my best friend right now is currently reading it. And she, she said, it's like literally the best book she's ever read. And she said that and she meant it. And, I, and that made me feel great. But you know, I, I get emotional thinking about it because like, I never wanted to grow up and be a famous celebrity, a famous actor, a famous, you know, whatever. I never, I never had role models like that. My role models were always my parents and my grandparents. And I said that if I can go and I can be in a place one day where they're on their deathbeds and they say that nothing else, but they say that they're proud of me, that'll be enough. That'll be enough. I don't care if they think that you know, if I don't care if I'm the CEO of my company, I don't care if I make a million dollars, I don't care if I'm poor, I, I really don't give a shit about any of that kind of stuff. What I care about is the approval from people who I admire and who I respect. And those are the four people that I admire and respect the most by a, a wide margin in multiple ways. And I'm not discounting all the other great relationships I have, because thankfully, I'm very, very blessed to have other family members, other friends that are very, very important to me in my life. But if I had to put a top tier, those four would be in it. And so I did get a lot of pushback and a lot of negatives from family members and from friends and from people at work and from people at, you know, everything else because they didn't, you know, agree with my style, whatever the hell that means. But, you know, I got the approval from the people that I wanted the approval from and that, you know, I could basically, I could care less about what some Karen type lady says to me on Amazon. Like, I don't give a shit. I really don't. No, it's a, it's a great answer. And that's what I really liked about it was, 
you know you were coming from a place of authenticness you know you you were speaking from the heart you know there was nothing sort of hidden behind it where you see these people doing instant gratification they'll tweet out like oh i love this i love that knowing fine well they'll get their little bunch of followers support them you know i found people who disliked the style you knew they weren't ready to do the work you know they weren't ready to ask themselves mm -hmm. the question of like their dark side why they didn't like that how why they found that confrontational why they did that why they did this and I've I've seen true unconditional love from parents. You know, I've like my our mother and father, like they never pushed us in any particular way. If we wanted to be religious, you could be religious. If you didn't, you didn't. They wouldn't f like force their values on us, but they would let us help us shape it by asking questions. And I think mm -hmm. that's a great way of doing it. And it's is that one of the guiding principles you think that it's to stop people pleasing and to actually go out and find your true the tr you know what you're really looking for how would you advise people to use this book especially people who are coming from the they're caught in the cogs for so long is it just reading it and then finding what resonates and just letting it kind of go from one cog to the next in their kind of self-discovery i would say it's that and i would also say that the, the moment you stop a lot of your people pleasing is the moment you start living to your values. And mm -hmm. I think that the other thing is like, you know, because if you're, if you're beholden to someone else's set of values, then you're naturally going to want to please those things. But if you're beholden to your own values, you want to please your own values. And that's a very, very different conversation to have. So I would say just for anyone who is curious about it or who wants to really look into it, excuse me, I would say the biggest thing is give it a chance you know, it's not that expensive. I, I, I lowered the price a couple of days ago. It's not that, you know, it's, 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 it's not that expensive. And so I, I would say, you know, give it a chance, reach out to me. I'm, I'm more than happy to talk about it. I've done, I've been very, very blessed and very fortunate to hmm. have conversations with so many wonderful people who, by the way, I don't think I've had conversations with people who agree with almost everything that I say and people who I would have nothing in common with in real life, but we've had a, a remarkable set of discussions about a lot of different things. And so I think that that is proof of concept enough where people can say that they are, you know, that this can relate to them. If, even if they can't relate to me, like, like me, I'm, you know, a uh, six foot two, 180 pound or 190 pound Neanderthal who is only really good at lifting weights and punching that box three days a week. Only, you know, only really good at lifting weights, punching things. I, I, I I'm not, I'm not really that skilled. I'm not, talented in many ways. I'm not very special in a lot of other ways. So if someone like me can write this book and a lot of people who have really, really gifts and good gifts and strengths and talents can relate to it, then I think it's a very, very wide spectrum of people who can absorb the things that I say, hopefully, and they can apply it to themselves in a way that they can see fit to themselves and their values. Because you, you mean at the start, you mentioned about Chris Farley, how he goes from being uh, like a, a comedian on his own terms to kind of becoming like a like a shell of himself, like he becomes like a, almost like a character of what he thinks he should be. Who do you think are because you know there's a lot of different examples throughout the book. I'm trying to avoid like like name too many, but who who would you say are great examples of people who live by their true values, who are very strong with their identity, who act very authentic, you know. I mean, obviously, apart from yourself, but who are people 
who kind of are great examples that people can look at as role models, not follow them, but use their style of thinking or their way of acting in their own life? Well, thank you. First of all, that was very, very nice. And I think that a big part of it was I want a big part of the book. I don't know if you got to the acknowledgements and read the acknowledgements at all, but I thank all. So I dedicated the book to those who tell the truth. And then I, I thank a lot of people who do tell the truth and some of them do, and some of them do not. And I realized that after that, some of these people are outdated, but I think some of the, some of the people that I look up to are, I would say I look up to them because I know that they're not lying to me. I know that they're not fake. And I think that they are a lot and they're honest. So I like to, you know, to that point I said earlier. So if I were to give a couple of things where I, I know that those people are living true to what they say, I would say somebody like I, I, I think I look up to people like Jordan Peterson a lot. I think Jordan Peterson is all honesty, not a lot of fluff. I, I think Jordan Peterson is a great example of this. Yeah, I, I've seen well, the, the, the photo of you meeting him. And it's the smile yeah. on your faces. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, he's my hero, man. I mean, I, I, I what am I going to say? Like, I mean, I, I, not a lot of things where I have to, um, where I, I, I can do that also. So I would say Jordan Peterson is a great example. I, I look up to uh, Tucker Carlson incredibly highly. I think that, you know, he's oh. a very polarizing figure. But if people look at really where he comes from, I think he's a very, very interesting, he's probably the most interesting character study of any person that I've ever done. So Tucker Carlson is a, a huge person that I look up to. I think a guy named uh, Mark Manson, who wrote The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, is a very, very authentic person. I think uh, Jocko Willink is a very, very, you know, a very good person to look up to in that sense. Yeah. I've got um, that in his books. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. He's, I mean, he's, he's, fan, he's, he's phenomenal. He's so good. I, I think that um, another person on a personal level who I've met is a guy named, uh, a guy named uh, Hafiz Bayoku, who runs a podcast called The Roommates. And now he runs a men's group called the Effluent Standard, which I'm a part of. And, you know, you go to an online men's group and, you're, and I, I thought I've, I've voiced this exact analogy to people. I thought so we had I thought I was going to go just on a, on a you know fantasy tour to the Douche Express for basically when I was going to do all this other kind of stuff. And so you join an online men's group, you don't know what you're going to get. And, and I've gotten to know I've gotten to know Hafiz very, very well personally. And I, I tell you, I, I have not been that impressed by a person in a very long time by a person that I actually know. And it, like, I don't know, like I've met Jordan Peterson once. I don't know Jordan Peterson. I don't know Tucker Carlson or Mark Manson or Jocko Willink or David Goggins or any of these people who I look up to very, very highly in a lot of ways, but I know Hafiz very well. Like he texted me on my birthday a couple of weeks ago. And so I, I have never seen a, a person that believes what he believes so strongly I very, very rarely, I should say, that I've seen a person believes what he believes so strongly and is willing to go through the ringer, both reputationally and everything else to defend it. And I, so I, I, I think he, he's a friend of mine and he's someone that I find to be very, very admirable in a lot of ways. And that's a, a lot of a true with, you know, very, very few people in our culture. And I think that Hafiz is a very, very good example. So people like that, man, and, and there are a lot of people who I can say and a lot of Joe Rogan is another good example of this. I think, you know, Joe Rogan is, is obviously, you know, again, someone who people love to hate on for no reason, I think, in a lot of ways. But, um, yeah, I, there, I would say look at the end of my book, but I would say a lot of people who in the popular culture who I would look to, those are some some people who I would who I would say are at the top of my list. Because it's almost like a point where people we've got to a point where we don't know who we are so that anybody that does stand out that says, you know, that gets a bit of backlash, but says, no, 
I disagree. I'm sticking with my original thought, you know, and has valid reasoning or somebody that has like their principle of, well, I just disagree with that. And I will stand up for there's 30 people following it. You know, like the scene about the Nazis that they were just following orders and stuff and no, nobody stood yeah. up against it and stuff, you know, and it's, yeah. you kind of think, well, what was if you were in that situation with thousands doing that, you know, and it's, it's, yeah. it's difficult to see, but it's easy to say it, but it's difficult to act it, you know, and I think that's mm-hmm. the thing is like, we've, we've got to a point now where it's almost like it's the minority who are that way rather than the majority. Mm-hmm. And that's why I like the idea of this book. It's, you know, you, you're actually, you know, you're getting people to start thinking about these questions, to start thinking about who they are and who they want to be in life, not who they're shaping to be by other people, other mechanisms, our control. It's it's a fantastic book. I mean, how did you find the writing of this? You know, like, because, you know, you say that you're a nobody, which isn't true. You know, you've all got your own, like, your own <laughs> benefits and stuff. But how did you find that by going to, like, publishers and asking them for, you know, like, a chance to promote it? You know, how did you find that initial kind of like sitting down with meetings and people saying okay who are you you know like like mm-hmm. who are you to write this book how do you find the people coming back and saying you know like mm, you know it does this go back to what you were saying about your four people that you want to impress you wanted to just put this out how did you overcome that initial fear of fuck it I think the world needs this. I'm going to do this. Because when I started a podcast, I was expecting to be laughed silly by friends and stuff. Now I know that a few of them follow me on here. But yeah. if I had followed what the principle of shop and go for a pint, you know, don't don't voice your concerns. Don't go and speak to a doctor. Don't go and see have therapy and see how it goes. You know, don't do any of that stuff. You're just mm-hmm. meant to be quiet, male, get on with it. How how did you overcome that fear to start being creative? Because it's a big step that a lot of men are going to struggle to take who'd like to. But what advice would you give to them? I would caution them to think that the price of saying something is going to appreciate more than the price of not saying something. Meaning mm-hmm. that if you feel that you have something of value to say, but you don't say it, that's almost in my opinion, a sin. And I think that as people and particularly as men and men have a nature throughout history where we are the expeditioners, right? We're the voyagers or the pioneers, the people that go out and we explore the oceans and we conquer the lands and we do all these other things. I'm not saying that, that women can't do that now, but that's traditionally what men have done. That is the, the purpose of men is to forge into the unknown and bring treasure back with them. And if you don't start that for yourself and and you don't have to write a book, you don't have to start a podcast, you don't got to do whatever, but you know, go out and live your damn life. Like answer the, like the, the Joseph Campbell thing where the hero's journey, that is a real thing. That is a very, very human thing. And, And, you know, there is a reason why I think that Joseph Campbell is one of the most influential thinkers in the history of the world is because he was so effectively able to summarize the depth and the the unilateral utility of the human condition. And the, I think particularly the male human condition, but the human condition in general into one work, the man with a thousand faces. And he was able to birth out a sense of really, really 
you know, established and creative forces and a lot of other people. So I would say to any person that's listening to this, I would say that the price of not doing what you know that you are capable of doing is much higher than doing it and being laughed at or not getting everything else. Like, like for me, for example. So you asked kind of about my publishing process. I went to one publisher. So shout out to David Goggins. I, I went through David Goggins as publisher, but the, oh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So it was really, really cool. So, so, but, but the flip side of that is that I had to pay for it. I had to pay a lot for it. I, I, you know, like you know, two weeks ago I was, you know, I'm, I'm swamped in credit card debt. I am, you know, I was overdrawing my bank account every week for like two months. I was, you know, basically $6,000 in the hole. I, I, you know, got a late notification of my rent a couple of times. I remember, and I remember the first moment it got real was that I was with my men's group actually in a conference in Phoenix, Arizona at the beginning of October. And I was in the airport after the weekend, one of the greatest, you know, you know, most influential weekends of my life probably. And I'm in the airport and I'm hungry and I'm just like, I'm, I'm done. I'm tired. I want a fucking cheeseburger. So I go into the airport and I go into the Roku restaurant and I, I just, I want a shitty airport burger. I want to go and I want to listen to a podcast. I want to zone out and get home and, and, you know, do whatever. And I go and I get the, the shitty airport burger and it's a shitty airport burger and whatever, but I'm eating, I'm, I'm getting sustenance in my body. And so I'm, I'm eating, I'm eating the meal, everything else. It's, you know, great, whatever. I, I have my Air- AirPods in. I don't want to talk to anybody. I'm just going to do everything else. I'm like, Hey man, like, just give me the check. And he's like, sure, man, go ahead. And so I, um, I put my credit card down I slide it over to him and he's like, Hey man, this doesn't work. I need something else. And I'm like, what? He's like, and it's my debit card, by the way, it's not a credit card. I can't like run out of everything else. And so I try another card, put it down on the tray, slide it over to him. Hey man, this doesn't work. Give me another one and put another one down slide it over to him. And thankfully this one works. But that was my first like, oh shit moment where I was like, this, this might sink me. Like it might, it might sink me. Like I'm, I might, I I might get into serious trouble here. And thankfully I was able to move some things around, but you know, I I, I was thinking about that and and I had a conversation with my dad about it like three weeks ago. I, I got pretty low about it because my book is not sold particularly well. There are people obviously that dislike it and they can see it all over. It's on the internet. People can see all that other kind of stuff, whatever. And you know, I'm like, you know, I got to a point where I asked myself, I'm like, you know, like, was this even worth it? Like, I mean, like, like, like I put myself, I spent an ungodly amount of money on this book. I'm going to be in debt for a while. I'm doing all this other kind of stuff. I'm like, you know, what the hell was the point of this? Like, I mean, like very few people read it. I mean, I got, you know, a bunch of other things and I, I got mostly good reviews, thankfully, overwhelmingly good reviews from a lot of people. But, you know, that was kind of everything else where I was like, you know, why did I just, why did I do this to myself? Like, why would I put myself through this? And, you know, that was the answer that, I came up with. And I, I, I told my dad, I said, I'm, I'm terrified of the possibility that I don't do this because if I, let's just say that I, I stop everything, I stop my podcast, I stop my blog, I stop my books, I stop everything that I do. And I just go off and, you know, live the normal life, which I despise that normal people, my, that people my age live, like go off. And I live in Austin, Texas. It's like the, you know, the, the hot, the hot, the whatever city, hottest city in America right now. And so what do people, young people in Austin do? They work in tech, they go out on weekends, they blow a lot of money and they drink their brains out until they go in hungover on a Monday. That sounds miserable to me. Like I'm, and I, and I have no, nothing against mm-hmm. all those people, but I don't like drinking. I don't like, you know, I don't like going out and partying with strangers. I don't like, you know, making friends with random people at bars. It, 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 it's never appealed to me. And I think the reality of me resigning myself to that lifestyle is much worse than living the lifestyle that I currently am. So 
I got to suck it up. I got to work harder. I got to work smarter. And I just got to be better because I know what awaits me if I decide to hang it up and I'm not hanging my jersey up in the rafters. I know what's going to happen if I do that. And what's going to happen is that I'm going to be an absolute, just like, I'm just going to be miserable. That's what's going to happen. And you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to reconcile that. I can't reconcile that. I just can't do it. I mean, that really resonated with me because when I started this, I kept thinking, why do I do this? You know, like I'm finishing work, grabbing something to eat sometimes, not till like 10, 11 at night because I'm doing a podcast. I'm prepping for the next person. When I get five minutes, I'm already looking for the next guest or I'm researching them and stuff like that. You know, and then you think you see people who sit watching TV all night. They're just sitting drinking and you're thinking, I would rather do this and not make a penny, but put something out there than knowing that one person who's going through what I was going through thinks there is another step. There is something else they can do. And you're probably giving that to somebody else. You know, you're probably changing, like say maybe even if 10 people read it and if one person got a spark, an ignition of like, there is true change, like the like flicking the amber or change or whatever the saying is, then that mm-hmm. is worth it. I mean, I know it would be helpful to pay your yes. card debt and stuff, but I think this is the thing you are giving out to society. You're being a thing. You know that there's a, something deep within you that you need to share with other people. And a lot of people have that, but are too afraid to go and do it. So like if somebody is starting that, you know, they're using your book, they're answering the questions, they're doing the inner work. How do you review this? Know we're on the right path. And when do you change? You know, when is it like birthdays, New Year? When do we look and go, am I on the right path still? Is this framework still correct? Are the guiding principles still the principles I want to follow? Are my role models still the right people for me? You know, like, do you notice things different? You know, I have like, especially with your own values and identity as you wrote the book, mm-hmm. how do you make sure you're still on the right path? That's a good question. And I think that I argue in the book that the most important value a person can possess is self-awareness. And there's a reason why it's the last factor and factor is value production, because it's constant evaluation of yourself and your values. And I think that in doing a lot of those things and being very self-aware, you can make change more effectively and more quickly than, or quickly, I should say, than other people can. Because if you're really in tune with yourself and what you really want and what your values are, you can make a change. And I think that Mm. one thing I've prided myself on is my media company is involved over almost three years now, is that I've never done the same thing twice with my material. I've never done the same thing twice in my, with my, um, in terms of how I run my business, it's always evolved. Like I was just writing blogs in 2020. I got great advice from a, a close friend of mine who's been on my podcast, Pete's Demodis and said, Sam, these are great, but they're really long. I would re- really like to listen to them. I'm like, done, I'll make a podcast. So I made a podcast second year Two, I, I was, you know, after that, I was like, I'm sick of people only listening to me. So I want to bring guests on. So I brought guests on and now I'm going to get into video content and I'm going to upgrade my cameras. I'm going to do a bunch of other things. And I have the second book coming out and I had this book come out last year. Mm-hmm. And so I have a bunch of other things. So I think that it's being, it's knowing that it's knowing both when you're getting things right and when you're getting things wrong. And I think that both of them are equally important because you need to know what you're doing well, so you can keep providing the value where value is to be provided. And also you need to know where you're doing things wrong because when you are getting things wrong, you need to fix those things and see what you can do to further the value you've already created. And I think that all of that stems from a just 
almost ubiquitous layer of self-awareness that condescends, or not condescends, but, you know, descends over everything in a lot of ways. So I think that 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 is where that is coming from. And I think that if I were to stress that everyone pick up another value or one universal value, I would say it's going to be self-awareness. And I wouldn't say that it's probably everything, anything close to that. I would say that's probably the one universal value that I would say that everyone can be created from. Because I definitely notice like growth as I get, go along with this. I notice like when I look back at the interviews I did to how I think about things now, how I, you know, maybe confrontational at work when it needs to be now, when I don't shy away from things, I notice just what a, a change in me. And then when I see somebody writing and they say, that completely changed me or, you know, that inspired me to do X, Y, Z. And you think, fuck, it was worth it. You know? And I think we need more people like this. And this is why this is a great book because you're actually motivating people to make deep level changes, to change their lives now, not to be on their deathbed and go, fuck, I live somebody else's life. I didn't live my own life. And yeah, I mean, they might get the old Karen who doesn't like the swearing, but that says more about her identity than you, you know, and, yeah. The book, I mean, the book is definitely written in a way. It's difficult in some bits, you know, because like, oh, oh no, 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 I've got to think about that. You know, it's hard not to go into your pre-programmed kind of your own values, your own beliefs and stuff, and kind of go, okay, I can see what he's meaning here now. Why do I believe that? And then you go, okay, you know, and there's a lot to take from this book. And for a first book, it's it bloody good. Like, you know, what, what's you. the what's the evolution of this going to be? Like, what's book two? How are you going to follow this up? You know, what's the the like the ecosystem that you're kind of building on this? Where, where are you mm-hmm. taking this now? That's a good question, and I think the answer that might surprise people is that this is where it stops for now. I, I had no intention when I wrote this to write value economics volume two, and I might want to write it down the line. Like when I do have more life experience and when I adopt more responsibility, when I, I hope to get married one day and have kids and have a house and everything else yeah. and develop my business further and develop my career further, all that other sort of stuff. So there will not be a value economics two to the chagrin of the the people that like the book at this point. But what it did give me the confidence to do was say that I can do this. And my second book was remarkably easier to write than the first one by a, a long mile. So I think the second book, which I am, you know, to you, I would, I would basically say that I'm not ready to disclose what I am writing about just yet. I want to make, keep that under wraps for a little bit. It's going to come out hopefully sometime next year, but I wanted to challenge myself in a way where I would make it less personal and I would also write more topically about something. And I think that this is a, and I wanted to, I think regardless of all the things we've talked about today, and we've talked about plenty of quote unquote dangerous subjects, I wanted to write a book that was dangerous. And I wanted to write a book that really, really kind of hits the heart of something that a lot of people have an opinion on. And it's not something that a lot of people have an opinion on in the mainstream. It's kind of something that I think is bubbling underneath the surface that a lot of people are afraid to talk about in a lot of ways. And I think that that is where this is all going to go next. So I I think that, you know, this book was supposed to be relatively neutral. And I think I accomplished that because people are taking it a lot of different ways. I think there are going to be two schools of thought on this next book, which I'm looking forward to. And I think that that's going to be everything else. But I've also thought recently, and I think I'm going to eventually do this. I want to do, you know, so the book is kind of framed in the context of it being a textbook. So value economics, it's kind of like, you know, a textbooky type of thing. 
And I want to do a course about it. I want to do kind of a, a thing where I do like, you know, coaching for a lot of people and run them through the chapters and the steps and run them, teach them value economics and all that kind of stuff and do modules and all those sorts of things. I think that would be very cool if people, awesome. there's got to be a market for it, obviously. So I think that there, you know, there, there has to be a market for it and there has to be people that want to buy into it. So I think that in a lot of ways, it would be good for, you know, my business and for me personally to kind of use an application to all this stuff, because this book is kind of, it's a book about, you know, concepts and everything, but I want it to be more than that. And I think the way to do that is to put my money where my mouth is and see where it takes me there. So I think that the podcast is is going to, but don't listen to this podcast. It's my podcast. My podcast is going to be uh, continue to go as is. I'm going to expand the number of interviews I do. I'm going to travel for a lot of them, which is going to be super fun. Uh, my blog and my uh, writing on my articles is going to be very, very similar. I'm going to be doing a bunch of other things with video content. So TikTok, YouTube shorts, filming my podcast on YouTube, all that sort of stuff. Um, and then my next book, and I'm also working on a film at this point. So that's really exciting. It's my first fiction work. So I'm oh, writing, cool. writing a film. Yeah, yeah. So I'm writing a film. I'm writing my next book. And then I have my idea for my third book that I want to outline and marinate next year as well. So a lot of lots of cool things, but a lot of execution and planning ahead as well. I like how you're just getting started. You're like me. You know, you do one podcast and you think, yeah, second one. And before you know it, the bug hits and you're thinking about 50 different ways and I'll do a new series and I'll do yeah. this and all that. Yeah. And I think for your first book, this was, I don't like the word brave. I think it's like, this is such a, this is like such a, a strong thing from you to actually pick something that a lot of people struggle with. You know, it's not just a self-help. Yeah. You know, 30 press ups a day, go for a walk. You're actually giving like proper concrete action steps that people can do. And this is why it's a deep level change for a lot of people. And a lot of people don't like the idea of change because it scares them that if somebody else changes around them, they might be almost, inclined to change with their family friends and stuff so a lot of people it's like the crabs in the bucket they want to hold you hold them down rather than escaping with them and it's it's something that i think it's great it's what we need more in and you're doing awesome work keep it going and until we can maybe do a round two where we go deeper into each like the principles and go right into the because it's there was a lot where i think that's a podcast in its own that's a podcast yeah. in its own um yeah i try to keep this general so it's a bit you know, we did sort of bounce around a wee bit, but so I know we're well over time, but what would you want people to take from this? You know, like if they had a sort of go home message or just an understanding or a principle or something from this, what would you want them to take? It can be one, three, five. It could be just a message to remember. What would you say to people? Think about these things and think about them very hard and think about them very, very objectively in a lot of ways. Think about what you value. Think about how you value the things that you value and why that you value, why you, why you value them, excuse me. And then if they are congruent with how you want your life to live, think about how you can make them better. If they're not, think about how to switch that around. And so I, I wanted to put this out there for people to think and to have an opportunity to be honest with themselves about how they think about things. And I think that I hope I accomplished that. I think I did. But I think that that was basically the main message at the end of it. Think about what you value. Think about what the people you're supposedly friends and family with think about and value. And then live your life based on those. Because I think I genuinely believe that this is the answer to a lot of problems that a lot of people are facing. And I think that in a lot of ways, this can help people if they really, really take it to heart. 
It's like James Peters, um, a transformational mindset coach, said to me. He said, a lot of people look outside. They're always looking for the answer from somebody else, but you've got the answer within. And a lot of people are too busy trying to numb it with the noise from outside to actually sit and listen and go, what, are, what am I truly wanting from life? What do I truly believe? And it's when you start listening internally. You know, and I think this is why this book's really good is you're actually making people stop and think about these questions that a lot of people don't because they numb it with drink, drugs, TV, the bloody Kardashians, all this sort of stuff. You're saying to them, actually, let's find out who you truly are and then who you want to be and live that life. It's, it's fantastic work. So until we can get around to how can people keep in touch how can we find the the podcast? How can we find the like the updates on the new book, etc.? Mm -hmm. So the book is Value Economics: The Study of Identity. It is a uh, two-time number one bestseller on Amazon. Available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever you can find books online in big box uh, online bookstores. My name is Sam Lacrosse, L A Capital C R O S S E. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, at, at, which is basically my name. Instagram and TikTok at Real Sam Lax R E A L S A M L A X. And my blog is don'treadthisblog.com. My podcast is Don't Listen to This Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. And I don't think I forgot, forgot anything. I think that's it. Yeah. So book, podcast, social media, blog, and, you know, look for, I would say, more exciting things to come in the future. And I think that it's um, it's been a pleasure talking to you, man. It's been a really, really great conversation in multiple ways. So I'm very, very blessed to have gotten to know you. And I, I can't wait to do a round two as well. This is a lot of fun. Well, that's it for another week, and thank you for listening. It's now time to take what you've learned and use it to develop and enhance your life with the key points mentioned. Listen, try it, embrace it, use it, and crush it. Now's your time to hit that next level in your life. If you liked this episode, then please leave a comment on the show notes or a review of the show on your podcast platform. Everything helps evolve the show. Until next week, keep seeking the next level in your life.